This morning, we're continuing a teaching series entitled Called Out, where we are opening up the mail of the early church. Uh, Specifically, we're looking at a series of seven different letters that Jesus wrote to some of the earliest Christian churches in which he, he calls them out. Sometimes he calls them out to encourage them, like, keep going, you're doing really well. And other times he calls them out to say, hey, it's not going so well, you might want to fix it. And what we're doing is looking at these letters to these seven different churches and seeing what of what Jesus says to them might apply to us today. And this morning we get to look at the group of Christians who were gathered in the ancient city of Pergamum. Now, if you watch a lot of History Channel, you may already know that Pergamum is a city that really still exists to this day. But in the ancient world, it was a prominent city for ancient Rome, as were really all the cities where these seven churches were located. But Pergamum in particular was important to ancient Rome, who occupied it at the time, because it was overflowing with temples and altars to the Roman cultic or religious system. You would walk through Pergamum and you would be overwhelmed at the number of temples and altars. For example, a massive altar in the center of the city to Zeus and Athena. And what you have to understand is that at this particular time, worship of the Roman cultural gods and even worship of the Roman emperor as a deity was all but required by law. And so a group of Christians who confessed that there was no God but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they were at odds with the culture that they lived in. And they faced intense persecution. Which is why Jesus writes this letter. He he writes this letter, and and it starts out really, really positive. He writes this letter, and he gives this, this young church praise because in the face of such opposition, they have refused to deny the faith. In fact, he mentions someone named Antipas, who was an early Christian martyr, who apparently, refusing to bow down to the Roman emperor, was was murdered in Pergamum for insisting on worshiping only Jesus. And Jesus writes this letter, and he says, you are staying strong. I see where you live. In fact, he refers to where they live as the throne of Satan. And it's because there are so many altars to the pagan gods there. And the opposition to the Christian message is so intense there. And so he writes to them and says, look, I know where you live. I know it is the den of all the unbelief. And yet you, for the most part, have refused to reject me. In fact, one of you was even killed for upholding and worshiping my name alone. I see it. But then this letter kind of takes a hard turn. And Jesus says, but I also see some of you. And I have an issue with some of you. And the whole point of this letter, kind of the bottom line of this letter, is Jesus sends this message. He says, some of you are playing games with me. Don't play games with me. In fact, that's how I summarize this letter. Don't play games with God. Love Jesus. Let's look at it again. Listen to what he says. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus is referencing two relatively obscure things to us, but would have made sense to the first century hearer. So the reference to Balaam is a reference to this story in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 25, where this guy named Balaam convinces this pagan king, 
Moab, of king of Moab, Balak, to try and entice the children of Israel to worship false gods and to indulge in all kinds of sexual craziness. And the children of Israel being the children of Israel, what do you think they did? They were like, cool, sounds great to us. Where do we sign up? And so they dove headlong into all of that idolatry and craziness, and God was not pleased. And apparently also in this first century church, there were some false teachers, part of a group called the Nicolaitans, and what, what they taught was that basically sin didn't matter. If it felt good, do it. They, they were champions of the fancy word to be license. Whatever you want to do, God will bless it so long as it brings joy to you. And so by referencing the Nicolaitans and by referencing the, the sin of Balaam, what Jesus is saying is there are some among you who are saying, look, sin doesn't matter. There are some among you who are saying, whatever you need to worship, whatever you need to do in order to gratify your urges and needs of this world, you can do that. And you're taking that teaching and that idea and those teachers, and you're elevating them to this place of influence and authority in your life, and you're putting them right next to me as if we're the same thing. What he's accusing this church of is that some of them are kind of flirting with idolatry, and he's saying, cut it out. I see it. You're taking these people who tell you you can do anything you want, and I mean anything you want. And because that's such a really enticing message, you're grabbing hold of that message, you're putting it alongside the gospel, you're grabbing hold of that teacher and that influence, and you're lifting it up and you're putting it alongside me. Don't do that. If you're placing teachers and ideas that tell you what you want to hear right alongside of me, you're playing games with me. Don't play games with God. So, so this, is, this is a stern message from Jesus. Now, I said that there are things in here that apply to us too. And, and I wish it were only the good parts of this letter that apply to us. But, but also the stern talking to and warning from Jesus applies to us. Because just as that church in Pergamum, surrounded by all these other cultural gods, were tempted to grab a hold of those cultural gods and lift them up and put them on par with Jesus and use it all to satisfy their desires, you and I, guess what? We are guilty of the same thing. We face the same exact temptation. You see, people haven't changed much, if at all, in the last 2,000 years. Every human being that's ever been born wants at least four things. Now, some might put different categories, different labels on these categories. They might phrase it different ways, but ultimately it comes down to this. Here's what everybody wants. Everybody wants influence. Everybody wants affirmation. Everybody wants pleasure, and everybody wants possessions. You may categorize it different, but it all comes down to that. All the things we hunger after fall into one of those four buckets. We want power. We want to be somebody. We want to feel good, and we want a whole lot of stuff. That's every human being that's ever lived. And now, these are not bad things. It's not bad to want influence. It's not bad to want affirmation or pleasure or possessions. In fact, I, I can make a good argument that God is the one who created you with some of these drives and desires. Uh, they're not bad things, but, but we are broken people. And so we take good things, we make them ultimate things, and then they become bad things. 
And so we have these broken, sinful, corrupt, and corroded hearts. And so we take these drives and desires that we have and that we turn them into divine things or things that we think can give us stuff that really only God can give us. And so we make these things like this desire for influence or affirmation, pleasure or possessions, we make them ultimate and we start to worship them using the language of the scriptures. And then anyone who tells us that we can indulge these things or says, hey, you can have more of these things, we tend to hold on to them and honor them and lift them up because it's what we want to hear. Someone who says to us, hey, you know what? You do you. Have at it. We lift them up and say, you know what? I like that guy. He's really wise. He's really smart. I need more of him in my life. I'm going to buy his book. That's what we do. We're guilty of the same thing. And the world around us knows this. The world around us knows that we are hungry for influence, affirmation, pleasure, and possessions, and that we will make little gods out of them and sacrifice everything for them. And the world around us uses this all the time. The news channel of your choice. The politicians that you love. They're all playing on your need for affirmation. Your need to be affirmed in the things that you hate or the things that you fear or the things that you want to see happen. They're all playing off that. The social media that you spend endless hours scrolling through, it thrives off of your need for influence. And with every like, with every share, it convinces you, hey, you're somebody. All the gurus of our age are writing the exact same book with different titles on it. Telling you the exact same thing. You can have what you want. You can do what you want. You can be what you want. And don't let anyone who tells you otherwise ever get in your way. And I don't have to tell you that the makers of every single product, they play off your desire to have new and greater possessions. And it works. I, I'm convinced, I'm thoroughly convinced that I both need a Peloton and to change my insurance to Progressive. And what happens is, kind of slowly, but, but very clearly, is all of these things play on our need for, for influence and, and possessions and pleasure. It, it plays on all of those things. And, and before we know it, even the most kind of robust person of faith, we have made this shift where, where Jesus is just one God among many. Where Jesus is just one app on our phone. And we got a whole bunch of other ones. And Jesus is, he's the one that gives us grace. And, and peace with God the Father. That's a really good one to have. Uh, but, but, but TikTok gives me something else, and the Amazon Prime app gives me something else, and YouTube TV gives me something else, and my fitness tracker gives me something else, and they're all playing into this need I have for all these different things, and Jesus just becomes like one app among many. They, they become, he becomes one God among many that I serve. Or actually, to put it more accurately, they, he becomes one God among many that I'm asking to serve me so I can build my life of influence and affirmation and pleasure and possessions. So the question that really thoughtful Christians have to then ask themselves is, well, am I playing this game with God? Have I got caught up in this? Have I, have I bought into the temptation to, to make all these other little G gods a part of my life? And have I lifted them up next to Jesus? Am I, am I flirting with idolatry the way the Christians in Pergamum were flirting with idolatry? That's a good question to ask. 
Uh, there's lots of ways to know. I think one of the clearest ways to know is to take a look at your life and ask yourself if you do this. Are you compartmentalizing your life? You know, people who are trying to use Jesus as one means among many to get to their own ends, they compartmentalize their life. How many of you have a picky eater in your family? Yeah, they're everywhere. They're all over the place. And picky eaters, they're not only picky about what they eat, but, but they don't want any of their food to do what on the plate? They don't want any of it to touch. Like if the green beans touch the baked beans, all hell breaks loose. We're done. People who have compartmentalized their spirituality and who are flirting with idolatry as it's defined in this text, who have elevated other things to a level of influence and authority so that they can get all the things that they want and put it right alongside of Jesus and are using Jesus as a means to their own ends. Their life is like the plate of a picky eater. God is just one thing on their plate and he doesn't get to touch anything else. He doesn't get to touch how you manage your finances. He doesn't get to touch how you steward your sexuality. He doesn't get to touch how you do your job at work. He doesn't get to touch how you, how you interact with your spouse. He doesn't get to touch how you vote and the policies that you champion as a, as a citizen. He doesn't get to touch any of those things. That's not his job. His job is to assuage your guilt and make you feel at peace with him. And you need all these other things to help you climb this ladder of affirmation and influence and possessions and pleasure. And if, if God is not touching any of the other things on the plate, if he's not driving the thing, if he's not influencing everything, if he's not, if he's not changing the character of everything else, then what you have is not a God. What you're trying to have is a pet. What, what you do or what you're doing is playing games with God and saying, you're going to be one thing among many that ultimately serves my aims and my needs. That's what's going on. You're trying to run a game. The truth that we need to be reminded of is that Jesus is not an app on the phone of your life. He's the operating system. He's not one thing on a plate that you get to curate. He is the plate itself that upholds all things. And he deserves your full devotion and your full attention. He gets to influence all other things. He, he doesn't serve us we offer our lives in service to him. He gets to influence everything. Are you compartmentalizing? So Jesus writes a letter to the church, and he writes a letter to the church in Pergamum, and he says, look, this is dangerous to do. Don't flirt with idolatry. Don't elevate other things to this position of authority in your life. Don't hunger after them more than you hunger after me and the things that I've said are important. This is dangerous. Don't do this. If you do this, it's going to catch up with you. And this is the point in the letter where Jesus gets very serious. L listen again to what he says. He says, therefore, because some of you are buying into these lies and you're flirting with idolatry, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Sword of my mouth is a revelation turn of phrase that means I will come and I will speak judgment against these things. I will judge all the cultural little g, small g gods. 
and I will show them for what they are. But also, I will come back one day in power, and I will judge all those who have elevated other things to this place of ultimate influence and authority in their lives. I will show them for what they are. If you have pushed me down and elevated other things and tried to use me to serve your ends in your hunger for all these earthly things that are ultimately going to pass away, I will come back, and I will show you for who you are, which is an unbeliever. You see, Jesus is a lot of things. Jesus is merciful and grace, gracious without end, but he's also God. And Jesus can put up with a lot of things, but one thing he will not put up with is being second. He is God and he insists on being treated as such. And so he says, look, don't flirt with this. It won't go well for you if you subjugate me to other things because I will expose those things for what they are and then I will call you what you want to be, a pagan. And Jesus is really offering us grace in this harsh word because he's showing us what idols always do, whether it's a temple in Pergamum or some cultural temptation. What idols always do is they say, here, you give me something and I'll give you something in return. And it sounds like a good deal at first, always. Spend your life devoted to this app and you'll get a whole bunch of affirmation from it. And maybe you crush it, maybe you get a bunch of followers, maybe you get a whole bunch of digital pats on the back and it works for you. But, but the trajectory of idols is always this. It starts out as you give me this and I'll give you that. But then it goes in this direction. You keep giving and they start giving less until you're giving everything. It's demanding everything and then offering you nothing. And by the time you realize that, it is too late. So Jesus writes this letter, and he's like, hey, don't play with this. It's dangerous for you. But this is not just about Jesus getting the respect that he deserves. Jesus is saying this out of actual concern for you and me, for the people who follow after him. You recall when Jesus is teaching in his earthly ministry, he, he warned us about attaching too much of our hearts and minds and lives to all of the unsatisfying gods of this world. And he tells us it's not going to work out well for you. Look again at Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read five verses here, so buckle in. It's going to take a minute. Jesus says this, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't love this temporary world too much, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Love the things of God, because those are the things that are eternal, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's important. And then he continues, the eye is the lamp of the body. We hear that word lamp and we think that thing in the corner of the living room that lights up the room. That's not quite what Jesus means. The eye is the lamp of the body in that what the eye focuses on, what you focus on then travels through the eye and fills your soul. What your eye focuses on, it amplifies and it fills you and changes you. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, looking at good things, then it will fill you. Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, looking at bad things, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, how sad for you. 
You see, no one can serve two masters. No one can say that their heart is devoted to God while their eye is focused on all this empty stuff and they're getting filled with it and shaped by it. You can't do that. You can't serve two masters for you're either going to hate one and love the other or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money and you can replace money with anything else on that list. You can't serve both God and this other thing. Jesus is saying this, look, I want you to know how the world works. What you hold on to in your heart is going to hold on to you. What you focus on is going to fill you. And a heart divided in its devotion will not stand. What you worship affects you. What you love, you become. That's what Jesus is saying. If you love this stuff too much, if you love it like it's God, don't be surprised when it changes you and it shapes your heart and your values and your whole life. Don't be surprised. That's what it does. You become what you love. I think this is important because if God's word is true here, then what that means is that some of us, while we're always, all of us are always tempted with this, I know that some of us right now this morning, we are really, really struggling with this. You're looking at some of the fruit in your life right now. You're looking at where you are, uh, the, the, the fruit of your life, the things, uh, the things of your life, also the things you're, you're feeling and thinking right now, and you're thinking, how did I end up in this place? How did I get to be the person I am today? Like, for example, why am I so comfortable not really coming to church all that much anymore? Or why am I unbothered, so unbothered by the unbelief of my kids Why am I so at ease with the idea of my marriage fizzling so long as my career is thriving? Why am I so deeply in debt, so deeply in debt for houses and cars and educations and everything that I have in my house because, because I, I was told that it would make me happy? Why am I so fine with being so deeply indebted to all those things and so unbelievably unhappy? Why do I think that's just the way it's supposed to be? Why do I feel not one bit of guilt about the amount of time I spend looking at some other guy's daughter on the internet? Why am I so quick to condone stuff in the culture that I know, I know is not at all in line with what God says is right? Why am I so quick to say, no, it's fine. To each his own, it's fine. Do you want to know why you are where you are? Yes, it's because you're a sinner. We're all sinners. You are where you are because what you hold on to has a hold of you. What you focus on fills you. What you worship affects you. What you love changes you. And in any way, when you make influence, affirmation, pleasure, or possession primary, it changes you. And your heart and your mind and your values and all the fruit of your life becomes like the thing that you love. The fruit that you're seeing in your life is because of the loves that you have in your life. And Jesus demands better of you. 
He deserves better from you and from me. But more than anything, he wants better for you. And so Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, he says to the church, he says, for those of you who have started to really flirt with idolatry and start to worship all this stuff, this other stuff, these people and these ideas and these things that can give you this life that you're trying to curate, that's all based on the temporary stuff of this world. If you're giving yourself over to that, I I, I want you to repent, repent. Listen to what he says. He says, therefore, repent to the one who conquers, to the one who does understand. Man, I've, I've really misplaced my, my spiritual priorities here. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Uh, that means salvation. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. In the ancient world, it was sometimes the practice that if you were acquitted of a crime, they would take a, a white piece of stone and they would inscribe your name and the not guilty verdict on the white piece of stone and you could like plant it in your yard or like make a giant necklace out of it, I don't know, and you could carry it around and be like, see, I'm not guilty. A new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That new name is a reference to baptism. When you're baptized, God gives you a new name. What Jesus is saying is this, repent of the fact that you have worshipped other things, and and I won't hold this against you. I will will call you acquitted. I will call you forgiven. And I I will tell the world of your new name, beloved, baptized, forgiven. You, you You are still and will always be mine. Repent of this and receive nothing but grace and mercy. Now, now I get it that we have a lot of baggage with that word repent. I do too. When I hear that word repent, I have images of like, you know, guys like me, angry white dudes just wagging their finger at the world. I get it. But I want you to reframe that word. Repent doesn't mean angry guy wagging his finger. What repent means is return. That's what it means. Return to the one who actually loves you, but you've gotten turned around for a bit. Return to the one who has unending mercy and grace, but you've forgotten about that. Return to the one who has nothing but compassion for you, but you've lost sight of it. Return to him. Turn around. Turn to him. You know, like the story of the prodigal son where the son wakes up and he's like, I've messed up my whole life. I'm going to go back to my dad. And the dad's standing at the end of the road waiting for him with nothing but hugs and treasures to give to him. That's repentance. Or, or parents in the room, when your child does something terrible and yet you know, no matter what, they come running back to me, they're in my arms. They're showered in kisses. They're my child forever. That's what Jesus is saying. Return. Return to the one true God who shows you mercy and grace and who will shower you in forgiveness. No matter how idolatrous you've been, recognize it and return to me. And the grace and mercy of God that comes through Jesus Christ is yours. It's yours. So let's get real for a second. Um, Have you been playing games with God? Have you been using him as one of many means toward your end? Have you been compartmentalizing him and refusing to let him touch any of the other things on the plate of your life? Is your life reaping fruit that is far from him? Be honest with me, just in this moment. Be real with me. It happens to all of us. Receive the invitation. Return. 
and know that all is forgiven. And that forgiveness, that's the greatest pleasure. That's the world's greatest possession. Knowing that God's not mad at you. And he loves you. That's what truly satisfies. Let me close with this. The church in Pergamum was surrounded by temples to all the false cultural gods of Rome. Overflowing. And it must have been overwhelming to just walk through that city as a follower of Jesus and constantly be bombarded by all these temples and all these altars and all these structures. Uh, The biggest of which was this altar to Zeus and Athena. Just massive. There must have been so much pressure staring at that massive altar to think, man, I'm not going to bow my knee to this one or this one or this one or this one. I only worship Jesus. Oh, my goodness. It must have been so difficult. And did you know that the altar to Zeus and Athena is still standing, although not in Pergamum? It's in a museum in Berlin, all of it, every brick and stone of it. It was taken down, taken apart brick by brick, and moved to the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, Germany. And do you know why it's in a museum? Not just because it's a historical artifact, not just because it has historical importance. Do you know why they're able to remove it brick by brick and move it to a museum in Berlin? It's because the worship of Zeus and Athena is dead. And that's where dead things belong. In the ground or in museums. It's because Jesus' word, that he would judge it and show it for what it really is, came true. Because when false gods fail you long enough, when they show you their emptiness long enough, eventually it gets abandoned and destroyed. And that's what happened to this. Don't put Jesus alongside some modern-day Zeus who's promising you power. Don't put Jesus alongside some current Athena who says she will make you wise and help you win your wars. Don't put Jesus alongside some other false god. Don't elevate those things. Don't subjugate the maker of all things. Because Jesus is the only one who will last. Jesus says in the words of Elton John, I'm still standing. Everything else will fall apart. Give him your heart and him alone. He's the one who lasts. Don't play games with God. Because he's the one who has all of the grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though our hearts are so promiscuous, that your grace and your mercy is unending. In the words of the famous hymn, uh, prone to wander though I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You still call us home, Father. You still welcome us into your arms through the work of Jesus every single time. Father, when our hearts are unfaithful, when we elevate the things of this world and the desires of our heart to that place that only you belong, 
be kind to us again and call us back to Jesus in whom there is grace unending. Amen.